competition law india's first exclusive podcast on competition law widely listened in 47 invite competition lawyers academicians professionals and competition authorities on our podcast to discuss and jurisprudence i am aditya trivedi founder and head of the competition team of the podcast and your host i am ananya shrivastava senior fellow of the podcast let's welcome our esteemed guest for today's episode thibo so Thibault Chappell is an associate professor of law at the Amsterdam Amsterdam Law and Technology Institute and faculty faculty affiliate at the Codex Center of Stanford University. In addition to that, he has founded the Computational Antitrust Project that brings together over 65 antitrust agencies. He is a renowned expert in antitrust and law and innovation and also holds a PhD in the subject. In recent years, his research areas have been blockchain antitrust computational antitrust and complexity science his most recent book blockchain and antitrust was pub- published in september 2021 and was appreciated by the competition community worldwide hi everyone thanks for having me thank you anil hi sir welcome to the podcast uh, starting the conversation uh, let me ask interconnection between network and platform effects and how could generative ai you yeah of course um so those are big concepts that we've been debating for a while but as you also mentioned now there is a new um kid on the block and that is uh, generative ai And so we have to talk about uh, how this concept will actually interplay with uh, generative AI, which uh, I'm not aware of any official definition, but I would define that as any AI system that can generate outputs, right? So I'm sure everyone is familiar with ChatGPT. Uh, some of your listeners may have experience uh, with uh, Midjourney and other systems. All of that, to some degree, uh, could provide us with uh, generative AI. So. how can we use that or how can generative ai create healthy competition as you put it well if i want to put it in a very provocative way i would say that the 10 blue links the business model that google has been pushing for 20 years now is dead um and it's and it's dead because if you have that option or another option which is to use chatgpt and actually prompt the system to get one answer that is more specifically tailored to to the prompt you've been given ChatGPT I see no reason why you would prefer to have an option between those 10 blue links right and what's very interesting is that uh in in um in the the word of management scholars this generative ai is creating what they called counter positioning the idea here is that of course google and all of those other companies want to to engage in generative ai and uh, they won't just uh, you know witness what's happening without even trying but in a sense those new companies are counter positioning google and the others because if google wants to to compete with chatgpt what google has to do is to kill that business model that is generating a lot of cash for google right and it's hard for a company extremely hard for a company to say well I'm going to kill my business model so that I can survive and come up with a new one and I hope that I will also do well in this new business model. Another example may be uh, Getty Images. 
most of the people, I guess, are familiar with these websites. There are a few competitors where you can buy uh, pictures for up to 500 euros, right? Now, of course, if you have that option or another option, which is to use uh, Midjourney uh, to generate a picture for free, I see no reason why you will actually use Getty Images as opposed to Midjourney. Now, Getty Images may create generative AI based on all the pictures that it has already. Um, but if Getty Images is to actually sell access to its generative AI 400 euros, whilst you can actually have it for free using Midjourney, again, I see no reason why people would choose to pay if they could, if they could get it for free. So you see that, in a sense, competition is one prompt away. And those generative AI applications are forcing existing business models to, one, cannibalize themselves if they want to survive, or two, not to do anything, and then uh, potentially uh, suffer from what happened to Blockbuster, a, a, a video renting company that decided not to actually invest in the Netflix business model uh, because they were generating a lot of money uh, with the late fees and they decided not to invest in a new business model and end of the day there is only I think one blockbuster in the United States because they just watched what was happening at the time. So it's very interesting to see how those existing companies are reacting to generative AI. Some of them will survive, some of them will disappear and uh, I guess this is what you can call healthy competition. Right, sir. Thank you so much. Ananya, are you there? Uh, no problem. Let me ask the second question, sir. Uh, what are computation? Yeah. Which are deemed as one of the key building blocks of generative AI and how it could be abused to cause unfair computation. competition? Yeah, so um, those computational resources have, have been, for the past few weeks, at the center of many discussions. And uh, I think it's extremely interesting indeed, but for the sake of clarity, I would like to make a distinction between at least four different layers when it comes to what we may call generative AI, but it's a bit more complex, of course. The first layer is what I will call the infrastructure layer, right? So this is what you need uh, access to the data centers, access to the cloud infrastructures, and so on and so forth, so that you could then develop in that layer number two, your foundation model, right? So when you hear about machine learning, this is what those companies are doing. They train those AI system based on sometimes billion, if not trillion of data. Uh, and that requires, of course, access to great computational power. Um, so you see already an interaction between that second layer, the one of foundation models, trained based on the infrastructure layer. Now, if I go up, and that's the third layer, then you have what we may call generative AI uh, proper. So in a sense, it's all the applications and services that as a user you can use to generate an output that is actually relying on the foundation uh, layer, the second layer. And the fourth and final layer is the one of users, right? So you have the third layer, all the companies, and then all the, the users making use of those generative AI. So the, the, the infrastructure layer, in a sense, is uh, very important because, of course, it's at the basis 
uh, at the foundation of all of those layers. And the question now in front of us is whether uh, it is possible to uh, compete at the foundation layer, the second one, without a fair access to a, uh, the first layer, the one of the infrastructure. So I give you some example. OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, spent in 2022 alone uh, $440 million US dollar in training uh, their uh, foundation model, right? Uh, and so, of course, this required, again, computational power, and this is costly. Same for Google. The company spent $20 million uh, US dollar to train uh, a pathway language model, right, from scratch. And you have many, many more examples of that. Um, in fact, uh, ChatGPT uh, Chat or the company behind it, OpenAI, reportedly spends 700,000 US dollar per day just to run ChatGPT. So the costs at the infrastructure layer are absolutely enormous. And there are fear that uh, it may actually uh, create competition problems. That being said, and I think this is very important to look at the dynamics in the space, uh, we see that there are many companies now competing to lower the costs of training those foundation models. NVIDIA, which is the one of the large companies at the infrastructure layer, um, has been now uh, putting new chips on the market and claims that if you use NVIDIA GPU, you can actually cut the price of training a foundation model from 10 million US dollars just a few months ago to now 400,000 US dollars. So end of the day, if you think there are too many numbers, just remember that it is not clear uh, in uh, October 2023 if the cost of training those foundation model will define competition in the space. It might be, but it might also be that indeed the cost will become so low that end of the day, other factors will define whether or not we have competition. Thank you so for the elaborative answer. Let us come to the aspect of big tech and how this particular are connected with it. How do you think generative AI can strengthen the positions of the big? Yeah. So. Um, of course, that's the question that competition lawyers have been asking for now 10 to 15 years. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it makes sense or in a sense, of course, I mean, it makes sense to ask the question, but the distinction we may want to make between big tech and small tech um, is, not, um, is not that clear cut if you look at what's happening out there. I give you one, one reason for that. Uh, there is, as I speak, a battle between open source generative AI and closed source generative AI. And big tech companies do not feel well into this category between the two. Uh, Meta, or formerly Facebook, is open source. Google uh, put out in 2017 a paper about transformers that is actually at the basis of the explosion we've seen in recent months when it comes to, to generative AI, and this was open source. So those two companies, you can make a point, are more or less open source. I mean, it's a bit more complex than that, but on the side of open source. And some other companies like Microsoft and Amazon, as I speak, are more closed source. But of course, this changes every time they put out a new model, right? They may change their policy. So I think it's better uh, uh, for the sake of understanding the dynamics to make a distinction between closed and open source. 
Now, where big tech re-entered the picture is if you looked at the capacity for open source or closed source, whatever they choose, to actually make it and survive. And here, of course, if we talk about a big tech company with, let's say, 3 billion users, we can see very easily how if that company is to push a generative AI application to 3 billion users, that's a big advantage that you have to actually generate network effects, interesting returns, and so on and so forth. So I'm not saying that the bigness of the companies is irrelevant, but I think it's relevant in the context of understanding whether open source generative AI will survive or if, uh, like we see with Web2, everything in just a few months or years from now will be closed, uh, closed source and in the, in the control, in the hands of those uh, big tech companies. Moving forward, I would like to ask, how are the policies formulated? Be accommodating of the dynamism of generative AI as you spoke, and what are some indispensable considerations that must be made in such policies? Yeah, so so that's a big one. Um, so Sandy Pendon and I from DMIT released a working paper uh, a few a few months ago now on the subject, and uh, we received um, emails and requests from uh, different members of uh, uh, political institutions. And what's interesting is that we receive such requests from actually both sides of the political spectrum, right? So everyone, it seems, is interested in how how to regulate generative AI and, and whether or not something should be done in 2023 or early 2024. Uh, what we suggest in the paper is that there are things that we can do indeed, uh, not that we think everything should be regulated before um, before it, it's um, actually uh, it, it spreads in society, but if we want to maintain a healthy competition, as you put it in one of your first question, there are things that in 2023 can be enacted. And I give you a few examples. One, to be very concrete, might be to create more exemptions when it comes to uh, companies and especially open source companies in sharing the cost for research and development. As I speak, uh, at least in Europe, we have a exemption for the companies willing to do that, but they have to have below a, a certain uh, market market share threshold. Uh, they You have to be able to prove that there, there is competition remaining uh, outside of their cooperative uh, cooperation. So I think we could actually extend that uh, research and development exemption to all the companies uh, in the space of uh, open source generative AI. A second one might be to exempt uh, joint venture between company from having to notify the joint venture to the competition agencies, right? You can say, okay, you get a free pass if again, you are pushing for open source generative AI. Um, something we will discuss, I'm sure, because it comes all the time on the table is to allow the training of uh, foundation models on the data that is already available on the internet, right? And not to mingle with, with IP rights. Um, something else might be to make regulation adaptive. Um, uh, we can talk about the AI Act. I'm more than happy to do so as it stands. It's not yet final, but in the trilogue and the discussions between European institutions, the AI Act is non-adaptive. Whether or not it creates positive effect on innovation, uh, policymakers won't be in a position to change it. And I think all over the world, you may want to have this kind of regulation that you can adapt to, to their own effects. 
um, something else might be to create a forum of regulators to discuss those issues. And by forum, I mean potentially something that is informal uh, and not to create an agency for the sake of regulating AI, because if you create one agency, then of course it's easier to capture that agency, as opposed to creating an informal place where different policymakers, let's say competition, uh, data protection, uh, tax, um, IP, uh, may come together and discuss. So I think all the countries and maybe more at the international level could come up with such forum. Uh, so this is something for, again, 2023, so that we can have healthy uh, competition, as you put it, or good discussions, and uh, as opposed to waiting so that there, there is an urgency because something bad happens uh, one way or another. much for explaining these complex antitrust issues in very simple language and we work in your research papers as well as your talks in your working paper titled competition between ai dynamics and policy recommendations there is primarily non-price driven competition that you also mentioned what should be the focus of anti enforcement agencies to effectively regulate competition. What do you advise? Yeah, so so just to take a step back, what most agencies have been doing is to look at uh, parameters that they can observe. And of course, it makes sense, right? You don't want agencies to just guess that in the future, something may happen. Therefore, I will uh, punish the company, right? You want to be able to observe facts. So it makes sense. Now, I think when it comes to such dynamic ecosystem, and here talking about generative AI, we've seen the dynamism. I mean, by the time this podcast is published, even though you may publish it tonight, I'm sure some of what I will just explain will be outdated. So in those kind of uh, environments, you may want to try to be forward looking, but do it in a way that is scientific and it's hard. So I'm not here to blame competition agencies to look at data that I can observe that is almost static by definition, but I'm here to say, well, there is, I think, a way to better take into consideration the time factor in what they do. And that's, that way of doing it, in my view, uh, and in uh, Sandy's view, is to take into consideration what I mentioned already, and that is the concept of increasing returns. The definition of it is quite simple. Uh, it, uh, it means that when there is an increase in supply, it creates a reduction in the cost of production. So the more you create, the cheaper it becomes for you to create. If you have that, you have increasing returns. Or something which is uh, corollary to that is that an increase in demand causes a rise in the benefits from consumption. So the more people are using a product, the more they can derive from it. That's increasing return. Now, as you can see already, when it comes to generative AI, this is central because what you want is to put a product on the market for people to start using it. And of course, you will learn from what they do with your product, the kind of prompts that they put, the kind of picture that they, that they use, uh, whether or not when you actually give them a result, they keep on prompting the system, which may mean that they are not fully satisfied. So the user engagement is, is central. So to come back to your question with that in mind, what they could do to better take into consideration the dynamism of the market 
is to target is to target as a top priority the practices that are reducing the ability of competitors to benefit from those increasing returns right and if you do that in a sense you are by definition taking into consideration the time factor which again is different from what agencies are doing as i speak so um, if you go back to one of my first answers to your question you have different layers if you see that one player controls the layer uh, and can actually because of that deprive competitors at another layer from benefiting from those increasing returns well i would say that is the top priority and that is the kind of practice you want to punish in a very severe way as opposed to again just looking at what has been observed in the past thank you for your insights so uh, now the ftc and the doj have cited several possible anti competitive conducts that might emerge from generative ai do you think that there could be more such conducts that the ftc and doj might have lost sight of and that required equal or more of their attention yeah so so indeed the, the ftc doj they've been speaking on the subject the ftc published a press release uh, quite a few weeks ago and organized a workshop uh, when it comes to the creative economy and generative ai um, i find some good points there uh, but in my view they missed the forest for the trees um, i give you an example um, I am not concerned, um, as opposed to the FTC, in small tech or l- small companies uh, acquiring the expertise. I think we have plenty of examples of small companies compared to, to, to the tech giants, such as OpenAI, Entropic, and others, uh, Ugging Face, and, and, and many others, with uh, the most talented people you can think of, right? So I am not concerned that the ability f- for the small companies to to again get the good experts to work for them uh may create comp- competition issues a second example data uh, i quote the ftc here the ftc says that there are a few reasons why collecting a large and diverse corpus of data can be harder for new market entrants than for the incumbents um i think it used to be true but if you look at the technical literature uh you see that advances in computer science and analytics is actually making the amount of data less relevant today than it was yesterday i give you a couple of examples that again we detail in the paper with uh, with Sandy Pentland uh in april of this year the berkeley artificial intelligence research lab showed that a small model can actually rely on high quality data to compensate for the lack of quantity compared to to big models um and in the end uh they actually released a model with 30 uh 13 billion uh data entries uh that competes with ChatGPT that is allegedly trained with trillion of data entries right i give you another example deepmind uh which is now uh, a google company introduced in february of 2022 uh what they call the retrieval enhanced transformer and what they show is that you can actually train the model to compare what what the generative ai will write in real time with existing databases such as wikipedia to to assess whether or not the model is actually providing an answer that makes sense and when they've done that the team claims that its transformer matches the quality of models that are 25 times larger and there are many more examples of that so data is important i'm not saying that you can train generative ai without data at all 
Um, but again, just looking at the quantity of data as being the parameter that may actually define competition in the space, I think is misguided and it's something that used to make sense in the past, but is not making sense because of those advances in the technical literature. Right, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, now, another question connected to FTC and very well quoted statement. As a former FTC official once explained, that everywhere the word algorithm appears, there's a guy named Bob. If it isn't okay for a guy named Bob to do it, then it is probably not okay for an algorithm to do it either. Regarding the statement. So my opinion is that this is wrong, uh, to to put it very simply, um, because AI and humans do different things, uh, and they have different functions. Uh, and of course, once you've said that, you haven't said much. But I, I just want to give you one example. Um, unlike a person named Bob, an algorithm doesn't have any attention, uh, any beliefs or desire. Right? Uh, the, desi- the the algorithm is not desiring to to trick you or to give you the truth, right? It just behaves such as it was trained. And from that, it, it follows that the instructions given to uh, uh, an algorithm uh, are actually the ones that are given by human developers. And this has big implications, difference between the fact that those algorithms do not have intentions, but are being trained by those humans with intentions. I give you one concrete example. I think it might be okay for an algorithm not to be empathic if the algorithm is compassionate. Uh, there is a great book published by Yale uh, University professor on, this, on the difference between the two, in which he makes a point that being empathic is relying just on your feeling, uh, as opposed to being uh, compassionate, where uh, what you would do is try to rationalize a little bit and maximize uh, um, uh, happiness in society, right? For an algorithm, I think it's okay to try to maximize the happiness in society and not to be super empathic. Uh, while for a human being, we know that if you're not empathic, you actually won't be loved and lovely in the world of Adam Smith and you will end, you will end up alone, right? So you cannot afford not to be empathic if you are human. If, some, if someone comes to you, you can't always rationalize and explain that the person is wrong, right? Especially when it's your friend and something bad happened to your friend. You can't just say, well, you know what? This, this is nonsense, what you're telling me, with re- very rational arguments, your friend is coming to you so that you can actually provide her or him with, with comfort, right? So there is a big difference between algorithms and humans in that respect. And that leads me to, to come back to our subject of competition law, to the concept of boxing methods. And uh, by that, I mean the capacity to limit where AI can intervene in the world without human check first. I think for certain type of use cases, it's okay uh, to just let AI, uh, for instance, change prices without necessarily having a human checking whether or not the new price is okay. But when it comes to psychology, uh, and especially clinical psychology, you you may want to make a point that, well, it's actually super dangerous to let an algorithm uh, have uh, a diagnosis without any human check at all, because again, that algorithms may not be empathic, and you want a doctor or a clinical psychologist to actually be empathic with a potential patient, right? So you, we may want to discuss 
where we want to let AI intervene in our real world without human check and where it's not okay. I think that's, that's, a, that's a discussion that is more interesting than just to say, well, if an AI can't do it or if a guy named Bob can't do it or it's bad for Bob to do it, then the AI should be prohibited from, from doing it. Because if you say that, you will actually get rid of all the efficiencies that you have based on the fact that AI can actually be faster um, or to come up with a way to aggregate more information that we can as, as human beings. Uh, so safety is super important for certain fields, as I just explained with clinical psychology, but, but not, not, for, not, for, not everywhere. And so the distinction between where we want empathy or where we want just efficiency, I think will actually guide us as to where it's okay for an algorithm to behave in a way that a human, human being cannot, cannot behave properly that way. Your uh, response has surely provided some food for thought. Uh, now, moving ahead, the FTC has argued that incumbents have accumulated large amounts of user data over years and have developed and honed proprietary data collection tools. What measures, according to you, would help the new players compete effectively with incumbents when it comes to data collection? Well, I think uh, my answer here will be very simple. What may allow the new players to compete effectively with the incumbents is the free training of their models, their foundation models. Uh, especially now that we have already quite a few players that have been training freely their model. So if you are to say to the newcomers that they can't do it anymore, that's basically a barrier to entry the market that is really hard to, to come over, right? Now, is it likely to happen that we're going to say for a thinning period that new players can train the model freely? I think no. And the reason why it is not likely to happen, unfortunately, is because of regulatory capture. Um, I'll give you one example. OpenAI, which, as you may know, used to be indeed promoting open access, but now changed to a, a fully-fledged company uh, with a uh, closed system. Uh, OpenAI co-founder and chief scientist underlined in recent weeks and I quote here that at some point it will be quite easy if one wanted to cause a great, great deal of harm with open source models. And the same researcher, sorry, another researcher from the same company tweeted, and I quote here, that it is a important test for humanity to decide on whether we can collectively decide not to open source LLM that can reliably survive and spread on their own. So you see that already the incumbents, because OpenAI now is an incumbent, are pushing to prohibit open source, open access, and the free training of new foundation models. And to be fair, I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? If you are invited by the US Congress and you represent OpenAI, what you want is to actually create now a barrier uh, surrounding your business model. So it makes sense to try to capture the policymakers, but I'm not sure this is what we want. And why is it so important? Because actually open source, uh, of course, we may think of Linux, which is a, an operating system used by zero point something percent of the population. But in fact, open source technologies, they play a critical, often invisible role in today's digital ecosystem. I give you some examples. Uh, MySQL is a popular open source database that is used to manage and store data all over the world. 
Uh, you have internet browsers such as Mozilla Firefox or Chromium, which is behind Google Chrome, that are built on open source foundations. Android, on pretty much uh, 70% or even 80% of all the smartphones in the world, is based on a modified version of the Linux uh, kernel. Uh, WordPress, which is the, the content management system that actually powers over 60% of all the websites in the world, uh, is also built on open source. Same for programming languages, libraries and framework. I can quote here Python, Ruby, uh, Node, uh, TensorFlow, I mean, and so on and so forth. So you see that open source is everywhere around us. It is the foundation for the internet such as we use it. And when it comes to generative AI, I'm, I'm, I'm scared that open source won't be able to flourish because of the ability of those incumbents to actually capture the policymaker and ban the free training of new foundation models. Thank you, sir, for your detailed answer and a very good explanation. And then this conversation is that do you think that robust enforcement is the right approach for tackling anti-competitive or do we need any other alternative enforcement tool or mechanism or methodology well so i would say yes if by robust you mean adaptive uh in the sense of complexity science uh what you see is that when a system is fragile it means that external elements can actually disrupt the entire functioning of the system, as opposed to a system that is robust indeed, where the system can resist those external events, right? And what you see is that the more a system can adapt to its own effect, the more robust it is and the more likely it is to survive. And the very same is true for regulation and enforcement. Unfortunately, in Europe, which is uh, the, the continent that I know that I know most when it comes to, to regulation, our regulations they tend to be fragile and not to be robust. I give you one example. I'm sure you heard of the DMA, right? The Digital Markets Act. We've been talking about it for years. Well, guess what? The DMA does not apply to generative AI because the DMA will actually list those sectors where we actually will assess whether or not they are gatekeepers. But generative AI is not part of it. So you see that already because the DMA is non-adaptive and can't be easily updated, if not at all, then it, it tends to be fragile because now we can't do anything when it comes to generative AI. And the same is true, unfortunately, for the AI Act. And actually I have a paper coming on a subject where I actually dive into the nitty-gritty of the AI Act and uh, discover that, well, it can be adapted, but only when it comes to the list of what is considered to be high-risk AI um, and um, uh, only when it comes to the definition of AI, which is already, you know, quite a step forward, but the obligations, all the provisions that you impose to AI, high-risk AI can't be adapted one way or the other. So if, let's say, in five years from now, we find a consensus that we need to um, strengthen some of the provisions of, of of the AI Act, or on the contrary, to get rid of some, uh, because they are bad for innovation while not um, uh, maximizing fundamental rights, well, unfortunately, there is nothing we can do, because there is no mechanism to actually adapt the AI Act to what it will produce one, once it will become uh, a proper regulation, enforceable regulation. So 
those regulations, they seek to be future-proof, which is something they even mentioned, but actually fail to be future-proof proper because they fail to have the mechanisms to adapt to their own effects. So to come back to your question uh, about how to make enforcement robust and uh, whether or not this would be the right approach, I think it will be. And what it entails is the following. First, you want to define clearly what is the objective of your regulation, which is already something that is hard when it comes to GDPR. What is precisely the objective? I mean, we know it's you know good for uh, data protection and privacy, but how precisely uh, do you want to, to achieve your objective and what objective do you have? That's question number one. Once you put that on paper, you tell me, and that's step number two, which data you will need to assess whether or not your regulation is reaching the objective in let's say one, two, three, four, five years, right? In, in the time frame that you can define. Once you tell me which data you actually need, if you can access the data, then let's go for it. If the data is impossible to get, then I would say, well, wait a minute, you're gonna put a regulation out there and you'll never be able to assess whether or not it's effective. It doesn't sound like a good regulation to me. But okay, let's say you can identify the data that you need and there is a way for you to get the data. Then I would say step number three is, okay, intervene. Put that regulation on the table, pass the regulation, have the vote, and make it enforceable. Fourth, you wait for the defined period, let's say three years, and you assess whether or not you have reached the results that you expected, right? And if not, you have two options. You re-intervene to make it stronger or you change where you intervene, right? Those are the only two options. Ideally, all that, all those steps will be made public before we pass the regulation, right? So you would say, okay, we're gonna regulate AI. This is precisely my objective. This is how I will measure the objective. And this is how, this is the level that I need to reach to, to say that it's a success or it's a failure. You publish all that so that also academics and researchers can then do their own research. We, you wait for the defined period, and then we all do the analysis together, and we see whether or not we need to adapt the regulation. And I would say that if we do all that, this will be robust. Now, the big question is whether or not uh, politicians have an incentive to, to make all that public and indeed pass this kind of regulation. And of course, the answer to that is no, because in case of failure, this wouldn't be too good for them. So it begs institutional reform. And for most of the subjects I've been researching in, in the last coming years, I always uh, end up with those uh, the need for institutional reform, make sure that we actually create, in the world of James Buchanan, a constitutional layer within existing institutions to make sure that then they will pass the type of regulation uh, that is not easily captured and they have the right incentive to do what is good for everyone uh, and not only for them, right? So this shows, end of the day, how complex the issue is and the work that we have to do and that is uh, that we are facing. And unfortunately, um, uh, I'm not always uh, super optimistic that uh, we can change those institutions. But if, if we don't try, we know for a fact that we won't make it. Uh, so that's why we'll keep on trying. Thank you so much, sir, for this part. Observations relating to generative AI and competition law. Your input, especially on enforcement.